Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to the bloody price of freedom, Israel's battle for justice, freedom, and commitment to democratic values. Please welcome our host, Joel Griffith, Research Fellow on Financial Regulations at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Recently read, traces Israel's battle for justice, freedom, and her commitment to democratic values. Um, Richard is widely admired, not just here in the United States, but across the world for his endeavors as one of the most senior of counsels, most, one of the most prominent counsels to American victims of state-sponsored terrorism. And uh, I actually had the, the uh, honor of working with Richard uh, prior to being here at Heritage about 10 years ago now. Uh, Richard also uh, most recently was president of the American Zionist Mission, um, was the head of B'nai B'rith, and has served in various capacities in many nonprofit organizations um, across this country. And perhaps he's most admired for actually leading a walkout from the Durban con conference about 20 years ago, a conference which was supposed to be combating racism, but indeed turned anti-Semitic. So thank you, Richard, for being here. Um, joining Richard is Alan Carr. Alan is currently a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and he's admired also across uh, the world for his work most recently as the State Department's envoy to combat anti-Semitism. And in this role, Alan served as a senior diplomatic representative of the United States, worked very closely uh, with Secretary Pompeo, and helped negotiate some of the groundbreaking, groundbreaking agreements that we'll actually talk about today with governments across the world, and convened the first ever U.S. government conference for combating um, um, anti, um, uh, online anti-Semitism. So without further ado, um, please welcome both Richard Heidman and Alan Carr. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> well, thank you so much. Thank you, Joel and the Heritage Foundation for hosting us. Uh, thank you all to our audience, both here live and online, for uh, being with us for what is really a, a timely and urgent topic. And I want to begin, first of all, by saying, Richard, it is always such a pleasure to be with you. My old friend, my colleague, my A.E. Pie brother, we've done battle in so many places in so many ways. And, uh, and here you've done it again. You've done so much on the issue of, of justice in the world. And here in this book, uh, remarkably, you have chronologued the siege that, that the state of Israel has faced, and really Zionism, even, even before the state of Israel. Um, that siege was on the battlefield. The siege is in the marketplace. The siege is in multinational bodies of, of law and policy, and the siege is in the court of public opinion. And what is so important about this book is that you place all of these assaults on Israel's existence and legitimacy in a conceptual framework that traces the arc of the attack on Israel from uh, initially from war to the Arab League league boycott to the UN, and, and you show us how um, this is really a, a continuing conspiracy that faces the state of Israel, indeed the entire Zionist project. And that's why I think this book is such a tremendous accomplishment. I want to begin by thanking you Thank for you. writing it, 
and uh, really excellent, excellent job. So let me open with something that you talk about at great length, and that is Durban. Again, you track this from, from the Arab League boycott to the UN, and you spend time talking about the Durban Conference Against Racism in 2001. Now, you were a delegate to the Durban Conference. You staged a walkout. And this year was, is the 20th anniversary of Durban 1. And the UN has just commemorated, sadly celebrated, Durban 1 with what was called Durban 4. Just last month, a conference in New York held to uh, commemorate, to celebrate Durban 1. Richard, tell us why Durban was a pivotal moment in the foment of a coordinated assault on Israel's existence? Well, Elon, let's put it in context. Um, the United Nations, the family of nations, um, gives status to each country that is accepted into the United Nations. And each country is one country, one vote, at the General Assembly, not the Security Council, but at the General Assembly. So. Uh, after the adoption of the Partition Resolution, way back in 1947, a United Nations resolution that called for the establishment of a Jewish state, called for the establishment of an Arab state, special status for Jerusalem, uh, the body of the United Nations, um, on the one hand, welcomed Israel as a nation state after her declaration of independence. On the other hand, the United Nations stood by as Israel was assaulted in the War of Independence, 1949, the 1956 war, the 1967 war, the 1973 war. And Israel, as we know, won each of those battles. Now, the United Nations sort of helped bring peace by sponsoring resolutions at the end of or during each battle. But all of it was just for show. It wasn't to support its member state, the state of Israel, who was being assaulted by the Arab countries surrounding her. In 1975, the United Nations adopted a resolution that equated Zionism with racism. Now, you and I both know what is the worst thing you can call somebody? A racist. It evokes hate. It makes it clear that that body, that person, that state is unworthy of equal status with any other state in the world. So in 1975, the United Nations adopted this Zionism equals racism resolution. In 1985, the United Nations held a UN conference to assess and appraise the status of women. My wife Phyllis was a delegate from B'nai B'rith International, the oldest Jewish organization in existence, and the first major Jewish organization withstanding at the United Nations. She was a delegate to the Nairobi conference, and we showed up and we found a conference on UN grounds in Nairobi, Kenya, full of hate, targeting Israel, calling Israel murderers, calling Zionists murderers, holding up photographs of Israel killing children. This is 1985. Now in the 90s, 
the UN voted to abrogate the Zionism equals racism resolution. That was an official vote. But now fast forward to 2000. The second intifada launches after um, uh, Yasser Arafat left Prime Minister, Israeli Prime Minister Barack and U.S. President Bill Clinton at Camp David after Barack had offered what's reported to be a 96% deal. And he just left the President of the United States, the Prime Minister of Israel there at Camp David. And what emerged next was the second intifada called a civil uprising in nice English terms, but really a terror assault. And while this terror assault, suicide bombers, Kalishnikovs, all kinds of attacks on Israelis, Americans, visitors, workers, all this was raging. And the United Nations convened in 2001, because the second intifada, Intifada started in 2000. 2001, the United Nations convened the Durban Conference. The Durban Conference as the UN World Conference against racism. I'm using the short term. So we showed up as delegates. I was at the time the sitting president of B'nai B'rith International. I was the chairman for the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations uh, for its United Nations Committee. And so as head of delegation, we showed up in Durban. Now, Phyllis and I knew what Nairobi was like, but we had no idea what to expect in Durban, South Africa, in 2001. The country that is labeled as the worst apartheid state in the world, South Africa, hosting the UN conference. And no question about it. The focus of that conference was to paint Israel as worse than South Africa, to paint Israel as an apartheid, racist, criminal state, and organized by the designated foreign terror organizations, Hamas, Hezbollah, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, PFLP, and others, these delegates came from around the world, and their goal was to bash, 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 bash Israel. It became a hate fest there on the grounds of the United Nations. So Durban is, has to be viewed not just as an aberration. Durban has to be viewed as a seminal moment just two, barely two weeks before 9-11, a seminal moment when the world came together to assess racism, to stand against racism, and allowed the World Conference to turn as a racist conference against Israel, <coughs> Zionists, and the Jewish people. We have to understand it. We have to delve into it more because we weren't really able to do so, Elon, after 9-11. It would have been unseemly to be talking about Durban after the attacks on the Pentagon, the attacks in Pennsylvania, and of course the World Trade Center. So in, under the guise of fighting racism, Durban promoted racism. And uh, Congressman Tom Lantos, the only Holocaust survivor ever to serve in Congress, attended Durban and said, this is the worst display of Jew hatred I've seen since the Nazi period. Remarkable. Now it's often said that the BDS campaign, the campaign to boycott 
sanction and, and divest from Israel was born out of Durban. I'd like to quote something you wrote that I think is very important. I'd like to ask you to comment on it. You wrote a, a misconception about the BDS movement is that its success is, is measured by commercial compliance. Talk about that, will you? I mean, there are, in effect, what you're saying is there are two BDS. There's the economic BDS, but then there's the other BDS, the BDS of public opinion, the BDS of the campuses. Talk about that distinction and how each is equally destructive for the future of the state of Israel. Let's put that in context as well. In 1944, the Alexandria Protocol was signed by various Arab countries that led to the formation of the Arab League. One must ask, after the end of the Holocaust, the end of the Shoah, after having been through the Nazi Manifesto and been through the boycott of 1933 of Jewish businesses in Germany, and been through the Nuremberg Laws in 1935 that provided state-sanctioned hate, and then leading to Kristallnacht in 1938, and then leading to, the, to, the, to World War II and the attempted decimation of the entire body of European Jewry, killing six million Jews, a million and a half young people, uh, children, but millions of others, and the documents that are available now on over 100 million documents through the International Tracing Service opened up by the uh, U.S. government through the, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum led by Paul Shapiro for that effort. Uh, those, th that whole effort during World War II to destroy the Jewish people, one can argue, and I do argue, was then superseded, if you will, by the establishment of the Arab League. Countries that came together and adopted the Alexandria Protocol that has as its core non-recognition of any Jewish rights and has as its core boycott. Fast forward. In 1979, our own Congress, led uh, by, by the White House, Stuart Eisenstadt, working at the White House for President Carter, established the uh, legislation that recognized the ill of the Arab boycott. Now, the Arab League boycott included all of these countries who said we're neither going to recognize Israel nor are we going to do business with Israel. And if you do do business with Israel, you are going to be punished. Fast forward. 2001 Durban. The Durban program is adopted, and the Durban program calls for using every means, warfare, terror, diplomatic warfare, academic boycotts, economic boycotts, sanctions, divestment, and holding Israel out to be the pariah of the world. And it's this Durban program in which the boycotts are so strongly embedded that has now just been celebrated at the United Nations, commemorated, they say. It's a celebration of continued hate. Comment about boycotts. So um, the United States Department of Congress is charged under the 1979 legislation with responsibility to oversee and stand against the Arab boycott. 
and countries have indeed been held accountable. Not very many, not for very much money, but a list was created. I would like, Elon, to fast forward to a topic I know you're going to want to talk about, and that is the break in the Arab League by the Abraham Accords, where countries of the Arab League that have been cited as part of the boycotts, the UAE, Bahrain, almost every year the UAE was on this Department of Commerce list of countries boycotting Israel, and only through the magic and the magistry of the Abraham Accords, where Arab League countries broke away from the Arab League itself for purposes of establishing relations with Israel, only through that can we hopefully see a break in state-sponsored boycotts. But the boycott movement on the college campuses is rampant. The academic boycotts. The economic boycotts are rampant. You saw it just recently with Ben and & Jerry's and Unilever. You saw it with, before that with, uh, with uh, Airbnb. Companies launching boycotts saying we are not going to do business with Israel because of Israel having communities, settlements across the green line. It's a terrible situation, and I conclude this point by saying no other country in the world is ostracized through boycotts, through diplomatic warfare, through hatred, through singling out one people, one country, like Israel is. And you have combated that during your tenure as the envoy for the United States government and the Trump administration, battling anti-Semitism. And the battle, I'm sorry to tell you, is raging it's continuing and it's growing because they've had a great effect gaining companies, but moreover, gaining professors and gaining students. And those student minds are our next generation. They're being taught this hate on the college campuses and they will spew it for generations. We've got a terrible battle on our hands. And this battle is right here at home in America. The kind of principles we all believe in of a strong, proud America that is fair to everyone, but not to Israel. Second class. No matter how good she does, no matter how much she does, second class. And it emanates greatly from the United Nations, the UN Durban Conference, the continued UN uh, singling out of Israel, and the state-sponsored boycott and company-sponsored boycotts that we're facing every single month. This point about educating students to hate Israel is a, a theme in your book. You talk about, about that indoctrination uh, that we see here. We, you talk about the indoctrination in, in Palestinian textbooks and in UNRWA textbooks. You also set forth as a very important solution the need to educate about anti-Semitism. Talk about that. On one hand, we see the education of indoctrination and how influential that can be. How influential can be an education about anti-Semitism? And how can we replace one with the other? Well, the hate in Palestinian textbooks is on the one hand renowned, and on the other hand, just simply 
accepted, funded by the European Union, funded by NGOs, the Palestinian textbooks are full of hatred that make it clear Israel has no right to exist as a nation state. Israel has, the Jewish people have no ancestral rights to any of the lands, Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, call it whatever you want to call it. Jews don't belong here. They teach that it should be Judenrein, no Jew in any Palestinian lands. And they ignore history. They don't teach about the Holocaust. They don't teach about the expulsion of the Jewish community from Arab lands. They only focus in on the post-establishment of the modern state of Israel and its impact upon the Palestinian people. One step further, refugees, an issue you know a lot about. Refugees. Everywhere in the world, refugees are classified as refugees because they're out of their home country and they are resettled. And there is a UN agency that resettles refugees. We have laws in the United States about the resettlement of refugees. And we all work together to resettle refugees. The only people, the only group that has a different status as to refugees is pursuant to UNRWA that focuses in on Palestinian refugees. Funded by the United Nations, funded by, wor by world governments, President Trump put a stop to it. It's now being re-established by the Biden administration. The money is certainly needed for humanitarian needs, but the classification of refugees is an issue that has to be understood because you only have less than, I'm told, 200,000 people who are alive today who are refugees from the 1949 War of Independence when Israel was established and attacked by her neighbors but they classify at the United Nations under UNRWA 5.2 million people as refugees, and we, all the governments of the world, are paying those refugees as refugees. Now, in textbooks, the Jew is painted as ugly, and the Jew is painted as the criminal, and the Jew is painted as the racist hater. And that has not been vacated. UNRWA schools utilize the curriculum of the country where they are based. So the Palestinian textbooks by the PA and the PLO are utilized in the West Bank. In Gaza, the Hamas textbooks are utilized in the UNRWA schools. Full of hate, nobody's doing anything about it. Every once in a while, the EU says, we're going to suspend funding for six months while you, while you redo the textbooks, and then the textbooks just have a different color and different words. Come, put that in the context of anti-Semitism. You are teaching that anti-Semitism is acceptable. You are teaching that hate of the Jewish people is acceptable. Now, if you were teaching that hate of um, African Americans, hate of blacks, or hate of people of the Baha'i religion, or hate of Catholics was something that was taught in textbooks, the world would go up in arms. Sure. Only because it's hate toward Jews does it seem acceptable. And this is basic anti-Semitism, 
and it's imbued and embedded. And it's not just in Gaza and the West Bank. It's all over the Arab countries. With the Abraham Accords, hopeful, which I applaud and embrace and, and thank God for, with that break of four countries now, uh, UAE, uh, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan, embracing Israel in different ways, signing trade agreements, signing technology agreements, signing agricultural agreements, signing mutual respect agreements and, and religious tolerance agreements, and exchanging and opening embassies. I have hope that those four Arab League countries will lead the way in the battle against anti-Semitism that comes from the Arab countries. But what about the anti-Semitism here at home? What about the anti-Semitism being spewed right here on Capitol Hill? It is unconscionable that we are hearing members of Congress not only tolerate, but applaud, or hearing members of our government, high elected officials, not only tolerate but applaud under the guise of free speech. I want to conclude this point with just one small comment. It's long been said, not by me but by others, that I think the words best used are uh, one man's uh, freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. We have to understand that. The terror that is used, whether it's terror by words, terror by diplomacy, or terror by bombing, that terror cannot be viewed or accepted as freedom fighting anywhere in the world. It's, 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 a, it's a denial of the basic beliefs we have here in America and that our allies, that are democratic allies, enjoy. <clears throat> the last edition of the PA textbooks were so bad that Hamas used them in Gaza. That's how bad they are. Hamas didn't feel the need to, to add any venom in it. They were sufficient enough. It's remarkable. Now, you mentioned that the Trump administration cut funding from the PA and UNRWA uh, to, to, so that U.S. tax money doesn't print those textbooks anymore. Um, a number of other steps we took on this issue to confront this onslaught of anti-Semitism, particularly in the State Department, by my former boss, Secretary Pompeo, who's been just a hero on this issue, are numerous. For example, Secretary Pompeo declared that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. He later declared that the BDS campaign is anti-Semitism. The Trump administration acknowledged historic Jewish claims in Judea and Samaria, for example, by, by holding that settlements don't per se violate international law. The vision for peace, which, which conceived of Jewish claims in parts of Judea and Samaria. Um, the, uh, the made in Israel. Now, all products that are made in Area C, uh, Israeli-controlled parts of Judea and Samaria, say made in Israel. Uh, the administration put sanctions on the ICC. You mentioned the ICC and its bias. Uh, Chief Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda was sanctioned by the Trump administration for her bias against the U.S. and Israel. And there, there are so many other examples as well. How important are steps such as these in, in positioning the United States to take a very strong leadership role against this growing wave of anti-Semitism? Make no mistake about it, Elon, and you know it because you were around the world as our envoy. 
When the United States speaks, the world listens. They pay attention because we are indeed the greatest democracy in the world. We're not perfect, but we strive to be perfect, and we do so based upon equality, respect, and dignity. So when the United States said during the Trump administration, Israel is going to be treated like any other nation state of the world. We're going to have respect for her right to defend herself. We're going to have respect for her right to fence out the terrorists. We're going to have respect for, the, for her right to defend her people. We're going to have respect for her right to make her own laws and have her own courts determine issues there. When the United States took strong positions and said, we're going to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital because it's the, it's the, the, the city where it selected as its capital and has had its capital since its establishment. It was in keeping with, with uh, um, laws passed by every Congress, Democrat and Republican, for decades, and the president did it and put it into effect. It has made a difference. My wife Phyllis, as the president, as you know, Elon, because you were with us on the March of the Living, has taken more than 300,000 young people, survivors, liberators, educators into Auschwitz-Birkenau, into Majdanek, into uh, uh, all phases of, uh, uh, of uh, Poland, and then on to Israel to understand the then, the attempt at decimation, and the now, the celebration of life and Israel being forever. At that March of the Living, with you and others from the State Department, the Trump administration sent the first diplomatic delegation, including Ambassador David Friedman and other ambassadors from around the world, U.S. ambassadors, who came and marched together arm in arm with survivors and liberators and with people from all religions and all walks of life. You know that when we go together into Majdanek and you close the door and you look up at the shower heads and across at the room with the Zyklon B canisters, you know that we had to listen back then during the Roosevelt administration to the threats against the Jewish people because it was said that Nazi Germany was going to annihilate the Jewish people and they attempted it. Today, Iran says they are looking to annihilate Israel and that they will attempt it. So we have to learn from history. One of the things that the March of the Living, the American Zionist Movement, B'nai International recently did is take the fifth delegation of UN ambassadors. The first four all went to Poland on the March of the Living. Um, and then on to Israel. This last one, because of coronavirus, we were only able to take ambassadors to Israel. We've now taken 101 UN ambassadors from Amazing. 71 different countries. And for those that we were able to take to Majdanek, and they looked up at the shower heads, they got it for the first time. When we took them on to Israel, 
they really got it. Excuse the expression. It was then in their kishkas. And they were different people. And their spouses with them were different people. And they were telling us that they've been lying to us at the United Nations. And they've been saying, when we get back, our votes will be different. And indeed, we're seeing some vote changes at the United Nations. So when you talk about education, when you talk about leadership, it's the leadership of the United States that makes a difference. Israel is alone. It's a small country. Without the United States, it would still be strong, but it would not be nearly what it is. Israel deserves the right to defend her people. Israel deserves the right to have the support of the Iron Dome because the Iron Dome launches anti-missiles to stop missiles. Over 4,000 missiles earlier this year were launched, uh, were launched by Hamas from Gaza uh, 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 on civilians. Terror. That's arson. Yudin, that's Yudin Rhine, Gaza. Indeed, in, indeed. <laughs> and, 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 and incendiary balloons, balloons blown up by young people, balloons, things we all love to see, colorful balloons becoming incendiary terror devices, now carrying grenades on the bottom in baskets being launched, the, the KKL, JNF forests in Israel being burned as a result of attacks from Gaza. The world has to understand Israel is the greatest democracy in the world. It is the country that that is based upon American values more than any other country in the world. She deserves our support. She merits our support. And the leadership of the United States, from the Secretary of State, from the President, from the ambassadors, from the work that you did, the leadership of the United States makes a difference because I conclude with what I started with. When the United States speaks, the world listens. Therefore, we need to speak more clearly. We need to speak more consistently. We need to speak more loudly, but with the right chosen words. We need to evoke U.S. American values around the world in order to hope to have a better world down the road. Less boycotts and less discrimination against countries and against people and more respect for the dignity of every man, woman, and child. Uh, you mentioned your wife who runs March of the Living. I want to acknowledge Phyllis Heidemann, who's here with us. Thank you. A round of applause for all of your work. Uh, with that, I'd like to open it up to our audience, both uh, live and online, uh, for your questions. So, Joel, do we have a question from, uh, from our online audience? Yes. Uh, let's start out with uh, one uh, person asking about the Iron Dome. And we know that in, uh, thanks to the Iron Dome, Israel is able to defend herself and minimize casualties. But as a result, oftentimes in the war between Israel and her terrorist neighbors, the number of absolute casualties on the other side far outweighs the number of Israeli lives lost. And that is used by many anti-Semites to attack Israel and the Jewish people. How would you respond to those that look at that disparity in casualties as a reason to attack Israel? It's a good example, Joel, of the misuse of international law. In international law, there's the concept of proportionality. Let's just simply paint a picture like we do in our courtrooms. 
we have a scale of justice and it has to be fair and it has to be equal. And by the way, whoever puts more or less evidence wins or loses. Proportionality cannot be measured by uh, I killed two, therefore you can kill two, but you can only kill two. Proportionality has to be measured in the context of the, the, the basic reason why one is defending themselves. Israel, with U.S. technology, developed together the Iron Dome, David's Sling, and other technology, some of which is now being used by, by our own troops and being used by our allies around the world. It's a defensive mechanism. What does it do? If you've not been there to see it, let me describe it. <coughs> it's sort of like off the back of a truck, you can just lift up a box that's a square tube, and in that tube is nothing more than an anti-missile launcher. But it's, it's controlled by computers which determine whether the missile, the attack missile that's been launched against Israel, is going to land in a field or is going to land in a school. And if it lands in a field, you let it land. Might burn, but nobody's going to get killed, and life is the most important. If it's going to land in a school, it launches with technology. It launches. And I have seen inside the computer screens where they can track everything. They can track airplanes coming out of the Gulf and know exactly who that airplane is. But as it relates to a missile, when you have 4,000 missiles being launched, you've got to track them all. My understanding is that in the May 2021 attacks, Joel, there were about 42 to 4,500 missiles launched, and I'm told that only about 1,500 of them had to be brought down, and they were more than 90% effective, by Iron Dome. So why wouldn't every member of the United States Congress support, support enthusiastically providing the funding for the defensive mechanism of the Iron Dome shield? It is a defensive shield. It's part, if you will, Joel, of the misuse of international law, this proportionality concept. And I'm going to take it one step further. In 2003, in the fall of 2003, during the Second Intifada, the PA and the PLO at the UN asked the General Assembly to adopt a resolution to inquire and have the International Court of Justice inquire into the legality of Israel building a wall. Now, 96% of the wall is a fence. About 4% is concrete because of where the attacks were coming from. That wall, that fence, resulted in a debate at the International Court of Justice, which accepted jurisdiction that it should never have accepted. And even though Israeli courts were seized of the legal issues about the question of the root of the fence-slash-wall, the International Court of Justice on July 9, 2004, issued an advisory opinion, an advisory opinion, 
U.S. courts don't issue advisory opinions, but the International Court of Justice issued an advisory opinion that castigated Israel for the building of this terror fence. But it has gone further. That International Court of Justice advisory opinion is being used as the basis to claim that Israel is in violation of international law regarding the communities and the settlements and the towns that are in Area C or in Judea and Samaria are in across the West Bank. The hijacking of international law and the issue of proportionality on the issue of a country's right to defend her people, the hijacking and misuse of the International Court of Justice advisory opinion is just typical of what we face in the courts and in the court of public opinion. And it comes from a bias against Israel. Thank you for the question, Joel. <clears throat> and in fact, so shocking that that same advisory opinion you p point out so cogently denies Israel the right of self-defense against terrorists. Exactly. Because it says, well, you're, you're dealing with a non-state actor. Therefore, therefore, LOAC or international humanitarian law doesn't apply. It's, it's remarkable. I, I just want to say one thing about that, <clears throat> that question. You know, these rockets from Hamas are often called indiscriminate. They're not indiscriminate. They're targeted. They're targeted to kill civilians. Each one of them is an attempted mass murder. So you talk about using Palestinian casualties against Israel. Israel risks the lives of its soldiers to protect Palestinian civilians, whereas, whereas Hamas launches rockets to try to commit mass murder, each and every one of them. I'll tell you, I spent a year in Iraq, and when, when you get shot at by a rocket, you don't forget that. If it lands close enough, you get the wind knocked out of your lungs. It's very scary. But you know, soldiers get put in harm's way because they're soldiers. These kids in, in Israel, these are children in school. Men, women, and children who are being subjected to this onslaught of thousands of rockets. It's disgraceful, and that is truly a violation. Of, of international And law. Elon, let's put it in also, take it to the next step. Where do those rockets come from? Well, they're manufactured. The ones in Gaza are manufactured pretty much in Gaza because you can't otherwise get it in. But it takes money to manufacture them. It takes materiel. Where does that all come from? It gets smuggled in. They were using the, the tunnels to smuggle in from Egypt, and they were using uh, uh, naval attempts to bring it into Gaza. But... All that takes money. It doesn't just happen. Where is that money coming from? It's coming primarily from the Islamic Republic of Iran, the very country That's that right. we are begging to go back into a deal with, the very country to which the, the Obama administration delivered hundred more than $100 billion, it is said, Iran just recently demanded $10 billion in order to come back to the negotiating table. Where does Iran's money go? I wish it went to the people. I wish it went for food. I have no problem with the people of Iran. But the regime in Iran that is so hateful toward America, her allies, Israel, and the infidels, the fact of the matter is that money is being used to build armies. Just this morning there was a news report about Iranian funding being used to build armies in Syria, in Iraq, 
in Lebanon, in Gaza. Uh, in Lebanon, they host Hezbollah. I'm told that Hezbollah is sitting with 100,000 rockets pointed at Israel. All of that takes money. The flow of terror funding must be stopped as much as the terror attacks themselves must be stopped. 100%. And the perpetrators have to be held accountable. The countries that remain on the State Department list of state sponsors of terror, the oldest one is Syria, Iran next. Every federal judge that has handled cases against Syria and Iran, and our law firm has brought a number of those cases, has found Syria and Iran to be state sponsors of terror that are funding terror against not just Israel, but against the principles, the values, and the national security interests of the American people. Well said. I saw a hand in the audience. Yes. In terms of combating anti-Zionism on college campuses. How much importance do you place in university adoptions of the IRA definition of anti-Semitism? Because it seems necessary to define anti-Semitism properly if we want incidents to be responded to appropriately. Excellent. With all due respect, uh, Special Envoy uh, Elon Kerr should answer that question because he dealt with it for so many years as our special envoy on anti-Semitism issues. <clears throat> the IRA definition was voted on by the OSCE, one of the, large, the largest multinational organization in the world, and that vote was for adoption 56 to 1. Now, you, you can't get less controversial than a 56 to 1 vote in the OSCE, but you know where the IRA definition is controversial? Try passing it on a college campus, where far-left anti-Semitic groups Will, will sabotage the IRA definition. And their objection to it is specifically that the IRA definition in its scope captures not only traditional anti-Semitic canards, but also captures anti-Zionism and Israel hatred. They don't want that. They will say that the IRA definition is a, is, is a violation of free speech. It's not. It's not a tool of censorship. It's a tool of understanding. It's a tool of education. But you see, the anti-Semitic groups don't want anti-Semitism defined because they don't want anybody to be able to point to an authoritative definition to say, you know, what you're saying, what you're preaching, what you're doing is anti-Semitic. They don't want that. And so they'll, they'll work to sabotage the IRA definition. So yes, I think it's very, very important. More and more countries have signed on to it. I'm very proud to say that I signed an agreement with the Kingdom of Bahrain's King Hamad Center for, for that, that, that uh, exports uh, coexistence throughout the Middle East and the world that uses the IRA definition, first time an Arab entity has done it. The Global Imams Council has adopted it. And many countries, including Muslim countries like Albania and Kosovo, but then again, go to a college campus and groups like JVP will stand up and fight, fight like heck to prevent its adoption, because JVP is an anti-Semitic group, plain and simple. Uh, any other questions? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, I would just thank you. 
Yes. John Burlow of the Competitive Enterprise Institute, thank you both for this enlightening lecture. I'm wondering if you could comment on Israel's remarkable economic growth and prosperity in spite of BDS, in spite of all the attacks. I think they rank, they may rank just behind us as far as availability of venture capital. I think they rank number one or number two as far as startups and business formations and all these things. And is there anything the U.S. and other countries can learn from uh, Israel's economic policies like deregulation and other things? Uh, I'm biased, but I think Prime Minister Netanyahu, with his deep understanding of technology and science, <clears throat> and his <clears throat> deep commitment to building Israel over his 12 years as Prime Minister, concentrated on promoting Israel as not just a startup nation, but helping the world understand that Israel and the Jewish people are givers, not takers. They want to help repair the world, we do. They want to make the world a better place. And they want there to be good health, good welfare, good education for all people of all religions who should have access to all the holy places, who should be able to speak, should be able to think, should be able to write, should be able to read, should be able to travel, should be able to grow as a nation. You know, um, the fact that Israel has contributed to a wealth of information about the coronavirus is being used against Israel to sort of declare her to be a privileged society. But how did it develop? The Prime Minister of Israel made it a priority to do the one thing every government in the world must do first, and that is protect her people, defend her people, and protect her people from warfare, but also from pandemic. So they made it their business under his tenure, to go out and get the Pfizer vaccine and bring it to Israel and vaccinate every single person, no matter their race, their religion, their national origin, everybody equal. It's an example of how Israel has functioned for now more than 70 years. Israel has a military that takes every young person at, when they graduate high school and they test them. And they determine what are their strongest aptitudes, language, intelligence, technology, computers. And then they channel that person into an environment in the Israeli Defense Forces that is committed to defending the country, but is also committed to growing the young population through their time in the IDF. And when they graduate, some of these people have handled things that of course were classified, but once they get declassified, they're able to be made available from Wi-Fi to computer chips to technologies and applications today that 
are, are watering and growing grass in the desert around the world to help people that are handling issues relating to, excuse me for saying it, toilet problems around the world. What's my point? Um, it's not just about protecting one person. It's about helping every person in Israel. A true equal opportunity country and then export that knowledge to help the world be a better place. It's those principles inherent in your question that have allowed Israel to become a leader in so many different capacities, so many different areas. It would be nice and will be nice when the world appreciates her leadership and contribution more than seeing Israel, as I've said so many times, as an apartheid, racist, criminal state. And Israel is neither an apartheid state, a criminal state, or a racist state. Quite to the contrary. Israel contributes to the betterment of not just her people, but to the world, which includes our country here in America. I, I love your question, and it's actually a great final question because we're out of time. But in your question, you point out that Israel really is a shining example for the world of democracy, of excellence and prosperity, of the ingathering of immigrants, of world-changing innovation in high-tech, in agri-tech, in water-tech, in biotech. And so what is anti-Semitism? Anti-Semitism is, is, we see so clearly, is a threat not only to the Jewish people in the state of Israel. Anti-Semitism is really a, it's an, it's an assault on humanity itself, on civilization itself. And that's why the Heritage Foundation is taking such an active role in addressing this threat, this threat to America and to American values and to civilization, not only to Israel and the Jewish people. And that's why this book is so important because it makes so clear that this attack on Israel is not based on international law. It's not based on facts. It's based purely on Jew hatred. And in laying that out, it gives us such a powerful tool to combat and stand up against this horrific injustice. And that's why I'm so proud of you for writing it. And I'm so happy that you joined us here today for this important program. Thank you very much. And uh, that concludes today's event with Richard Heideman and Alan Carr. And one, uh, one final round of applause for both of them.